You're at the Over or Under Show. I'm your host, Ed Henderson. And man, it's a crazy world we live in. It has no shortages of rabbit holes. I'm not scared of rabbit holes. If you're not scared of rabbit holes, this show is for you. Let's see if we can jump in one and make our way back to the top. So glad you took the opportunity to download the podcast. I take it the topic caught your interest, that topic being the Christian and alcohol. Now, this ground has been well plowed. I'm not the first one to cover it. There are many, many podcasts concerning the Christian and alcohol. Entire books been dedicated to the topic of the Christian and alcohol, which is amazing because I think Scripture handles it very, very well, very, very thoroughly. And yet there remains so much debate, sometimes division. Some, Some churches have even made it doctrine. I mean, you're not going to be a member of their church. Other churches will sanction you, I guess, for lack of a better term, or they will only let you serve to a certain level. And I've got a personal story I might share with you in the next podcast concerning that. So it does appear to be a very contentious issue amongst Christians. They don't call it a outright sin. They ask the question, should a Christian drink alcohol? So Before we get into it, maybe we should start a little bit differently instead of just diving right into Scripture, which is really the only resource that you need. But maybe we need to uh, determine what it is that we're talking about here because I've heard some incredible definitions of certain words. I think the uh, people who brought us, the English translation people such as John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, nailed it by using the words that they did, the 47 scholars involved with the King James Version. And you got to imagine all the thousands of scholars that have poured over these works and uh, compared them to the original text. Let's start with a few words, and I'll give you some resources that you can even check up on the Bible if you feel necessary. By far, the word most often used in the Old Testament is yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N. Translates into wine as English-speaking world would know it. Strong's Concordance gives it the number designation of 3196. means effervesce by implication intoxication. Brown, Drivers, and Briggs notes that it is a common drink used for rejoicing before before things such as ceremonies, offerings, when people would bring their yearly tithing, and they end up with saying intoxicating. Shakar is the next word that is uh, very interesting because it's so often coupled with yayin. It is uh, called a strong drink, as it's so often translated, or similar drink, because it is so similar to uh, yayin and the properties of it. Strong's Concordance puts it at number 7941. It's a strong drink. It's an intoxicating drink, as they say. Brown Drivers and Briggs, usually condemned, allowed in sacrificial meals, commended for the weak and the weary. Uh, New American Standard Translation, drink, strong drink, drunkard's liquor. Uh, Here's an interesting word that some of you might be interested in. It is grape juice. It is actually in Scripture. Strong's Concordance has it at number 6052. And that word would be mishra. Mishra would be the word for juice. And adnob would be the word for grape. I'm sure I'm butchering this Hebrew. I do not speak Hebrew and do not know how to uh, pronounce it, but... You can go look it up. Mishra and Abim. Where we see that is, is number 6-3, the Nazaritic vow. The only other place that I think you might 
interpret something as being grape juice is Genesis 40.11. And this is a dream that Joseph is interpreting. It's, it's the butler's dream. Some people say the cup bears. But Genesis 40.11 says, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and I gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Now, this is simply a dream. It, it didn't happen. Um, but I, so, I suppose it would depend on how hard he pressed those grapes into that cup. Uh, what you're going to have resulting is some grapes with their skin broken, some seeds. What's of interest here, though, is that it is not referred to as wine. And some people point to this as they did drink grape juice. And I'm not saying that they didn't drink grape juice. I'm sure at harvest time, is run, somebody would dip a cup down there. Why would you not? I'm sure it tasted very good, but it was only grape juice for a, a limited amount of time, or so my understanding is. New wine is often pointed to as being grape juice. Strong's Concordance, it is word number 38492. It is called new wine from the word yurash. Yurash means to take possession of, inherit, dispossess. We see it used in one place here, and this is used in other places. But Jose 411, I think, shows you what the properties of T-Rosh are. It says that harlotry... Yayin, Tirosh, take away the heart. New Testament, we see glucose used for uh, new wine, and some people point to this as being grape juice. Incredibly, if we go to Acts 2.3, this is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has descended on the apostles and the other believers. They see fiery tongues. They start speaking in tongues. Observers that are watching them say, look at them, they're, they're drunk on new wine. The word used is glucose. And Peter sets them straight. He stands up for everybody and he says, no, that's not the case. We are not drunk. It is not even nine o'clock in the morning. Another interesting response. He could have, say, could have said, we don't, we don't drink alcohol. We don't drink new wine. We don't drink yayin. We don't drink the word that is so often used in the New Testament, oinos. No, he says it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We can't possibly be drunk. Acts 2, check it out for yourself. And I'll just I'll share this with you too. Just like in the Old Testament, you had mishrath anabim, which would have translated into grape juice. There was also an ancient Greek word at the time that they could have used any time that they were talking about grape juice. That word is trux, T-R-U-X. And yet it's found nowhere in the New Testament. So before we get into the passages of the scripture, I'm not going to cover them all. I've, I've selected some. Some will become from the very beginning of the scripture. We'll move towards the center of it. We'll finish up in the New Testament with a couple examples. The reason I don't feel like I need to exhaustively go, at least in this first podcast, over every one is because it, it, it sets the, the properties of wine. It, it shows how... It is used, and it's just, it just becomes very, very redundant. But in the next podcast, I will go over, say, more like the Wedding of Cana, which is probably the mother of all stories concerning uh, wine, Jesus. Even non-believers know that Jesus made wine, and that's one of the first things they will tell you. If they know nothing else of Jesus, they know that Jesus turned the water to wine at the Wedding of Cana. 
So let's make sure we don't have a problem with how we go about Scripture. And I've got, I think I'm going to share some Scripture about Scripture before I start sharing Scripture about alcohol. The first one is 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto good works. Revelation 22.18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears these words of prophecy of this book. If he adds to them, God will add plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Proverbs 30 verses 5 through 6 Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add words to his words, lest he rebuke you. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob have not come to an end. These are serious instructions concerning Scripture. The common theme, we are not to add to these words. We are not to take away from these words. We have a God who does not change. We have an ever-changing world. It's changing at the rate of light sometimes. You have to have updates by the hour as to some of the things that have changed. But our God does not change. So you don't have the right to add or take away from these words because you feel like it fits something of a higher calling, a nature. Something has been impressed upon you uh, that makes you think that you need to go up and above this instruction. By all means, if you see something in this world and you think you can make it better, you can do that without dragging uh, Scripture into it and trying to make it fit. So there's a lot of reasons why people would want to add or take away from these words. Maybe you question the Bible that's before you, and uh, there's many good translations of the Bible. If you look into how we got the English translation, you look into people like, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, the people who worked on the New King James Version, 47 scholars poured over there, poured over that, the people who brought you the Geneva Bible. And then you start to consider all the scholars that have poured over those previous works. And those people were well qualified to do so. Uh, Wycliffe was a uh, priest in the Roman Catholic Church, was trained at Oxford, taught at Oxford, William Tyndale also trained at Oxford and taught at Oxford. These were scholars that were well-credentialed and well-equipped to take on the translation and bringing the word to the English-speaking world. If you take into consideration all the scholars that have been able to pour over these previous works and contrast them with the original text, you're going to be impressed. I, I believe you will have the same confidence that I do that we do have a very accurate uh, translation before us. Now, you might want to check some, some sects out there, some denominations who really have their own Bible, but people who have made, this, uh, made translations like the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, they followed very closely to those original translations. They just tried to bring it into your modern language so you could read it easier, understand it easier. 
So the first place that we come across wine in the Bible, alcohol, it is in Genesis 9. Noah has just survived the great flood. And the first thing that it says he does, I don't know if it was the very first thing that he did. Right after that, he is growing a vineyard, Scripture says, starting in verse 20 out of Genesis 9. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Okay, we all know there's much more to this story than him just drinking wine and becoming drunk and covered himself in his tent, which I probably do a podcast on what that means to uncover somebody's nakedness, nakedness. But the point of our podcast here and topic today is just to show what it was and what it is that we're talking about. He drank some wine. He became drunk and uncovered himself. After this, I mean, if God had any uh, thing to say about it, and it said God walked and talked with Noah, it's silent. I'm not going to say that God did not speak to Noah. I don't know that he did or not. It just says that after the big fallout that happened with him and the family, that he lived some 300 years afterwards. There's nothing from God that said that he ceased to be a righteous man, which is what he is called. What we see here is that he drank yayin and he became drunk. The next time we see it is in Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings of who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, Yayin. Now he was a priest of God Most High and blessed, it, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. Abram has just won a battle against a mighty king. I'm going to take it that his interest in it was that his nephew Lot was kidnapped in this, all of his possessions. But he goes out, he comes back from this great battle, and Melchizedek, this is the first time we hear of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Some people say that he was a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. In Hebrews 7, 2, 4, we see, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So this uh, priest of God Most High, made like the Son of God, what does he do? He presents Abram with wine and Yayin, the same wine that Noah got drunk on. This high priest of God is now giving it as a blessing to Abraham after this battle. So we see wine can make you drunk, pass out, and we see it being used as a blessing. Okay, Genesis 19, we're at verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zor, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. 
Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight, and also you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammonon. I'm going to jump to number six. And it says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, namely the vow of a Nazarite, to live as a Nazarite for the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall consume no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes all the days of his consecration. He shall not eat anything that is produced from the grapevine, from the seeds, even to the skin. Do you remember earlier I told you there is actually a word for grape juice? This is where it's used at. That word being Mishra Anabim. If you don't believe me, go to BibleHub.com. Get their interlinear uh, Bible translation. It translates English to Hebrew. You can look at the verse in English. Above it, it will have the Hebrew word. And then the ancient writings above it, which look like scribbly gobbledygook to me. But this is where we see grape juice being used. And it is very... Specific. It wants to make sure that you know you're not going to drink yayin. You're not going to drink strong drink. Shakar, which we have shown that it was a very strong alcoholic drink. You're not going to drink. You're not going to. You're not going to partake of anything off the vine during this time. These vows would be for three months, six months. It was for a determined amount of time, and they were not to take partake of anything off the vine. Nothing that had to do with grapes. But when they came off of this vow, when they were released from this time of consecration, Scripture says they could go right back to drinking yayin. So when somebody tells you grape juice is in the Bible, it is in the Bible, and it's done there to make a distinction. Anytime that they wanted to uh, communicate that something was grape juice, they could, and they would have used mishra and abim. The next one I'm going to share with you, let's go to Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. You shall certainly tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes from the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Listen. And you may spend the money on whatever your heart desires, on oxen, sheep, wine, other strong drinks, shakar, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. 
wine and strong drink again is coupled together here wine yayin and strong drink shakar the people would have yearly pilgrimages if you will where they would go to the temple they would uh, bring their tithe here the god god is being very gracious you know logistically that would be something to bring all your herd your flock all your grains your your wine he says go ahead and cash out cash out put that money in your hand and you come to the place that i designate and in that place you will partake of all those things including yayin and shakar wine and strong drink they're they're partaking in the presence of the lord and I think we are well on our way to establishing at least what Yayin, wine, is and what Shakar, strong drink, is. Okay, the next place we're going to go to is uh, an incredible story. I love this story about Hannah. And Hannah is childless. She is incredibly sad. But her husband and her are making one of these journeys where they're making one of these yearly ties. And they've got all their... Uh, stuff with them their their food that they're going to uh, give unto the lord their uh, i guess it ta- is there going to, there's going to be a drink offering also let me let me read that to you okay so we'll find the story of hannah in the first book of samuel verse 12 it said now it came about as she continued praying before the lord that eli was watching her mouth as for hannah she was speaking in her heart only her lips were quivering, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you behave like a drunk? Get rid of your wine, Yayin. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman despairing in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, again, Yayin and Shakar, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your bondservant a useless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered him and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your request that you have asked of him. She said, Let your bondservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went out on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. See, her husband in her, as I was saying, Elkanah, had had just traveled to the temple. Uh, they brought their offerings and were eating and drinking. Initially, she did not want to eat or drink. She was so incredibly sad. Elkanah's other wife was just tormenting her uh, because she was childless and she wanted so bad to have a child. So what could have possibly made Eli think that Hannah was drunk? possibly because she was there earlier in the day. They were handing out the portions of food and drink. They were partaking. Hannah says, no, I'm, I'm not drunk. I've not drunk neither yayin or strong drink. She, she doesn't have it in her. But the whole purpose of going over this passage for this podcast, because it's a much better story than anything has to do with yayin or strong drink here, but just to go one more time to show you the properties of these two drinks that are so often mentioned in the Old Testament. Now we go to Psalms 104, 14 through 16. Verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of mankind so that they may produce food from the earth and wine which makes a human heart cheerful so that he makes his face gleam with oil and food which sustains his human heart. Proverbs 21, 16, one who loves pleasure will become a poor person one who loves wine and oil 
will not become rich. I read these together because they seem to be contrasted. You see it in one place. It's a blessing. It's a good gift from God. And then we go to Proverbs. It says, one who loves pleasure will become a poor person. One who loves wine and oil will not become rich. So it's it's a somewhat of a condemnation, is it right? But what's going on here? It's the one who loves the wine and the oil who's elevated it. It's, it's the displacing other things, possibly God in their life. It is this unusual love that they have or they hold these two things in. And you can do that with just about anything. You can do that with Facebook. Let me put this one out here on life and conduct. Uh, some people would feel like I missed something if I didn't offer this one. Uh, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Again, the the operative phrase here is who is intoxicated by it is not wise. Remember, I was saying there on the spectrum of drinking alcohol, you can have everything from straight-up sobriety, uh, knocking the edge off, some people would call it, to having your ability to make good decisions unavailable to you, or you could be face-planted. There's a lot of range that you could be on used in its proper context and used uh, correctly as Scripture directs us to and instructs us to. Like a lot of things, you can use something and you can abuse something. I think that's where, we, where we've headed as we've established what it is the scripture teaches about the use of alcohol. Okay, so thank you for being so patient. This has gone much longer than I thought it would, but how could I end this podcast and not go over the wedding of Cana? We'll go over this much more in depth on the next podcast, but we're going to go to John 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding twenty or thirty gallons, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifest, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. So, Something very interesting here is not only that Jesus made wine, but the amount that he made, six stone water jars capable of holding 20 or 30 gallons. I've seen estimates that said this would have been anywhere from 600 to 900 additional bottles of wine for this party. They would last several days. A Jewish wedding would last several days. And to run out of food or wine would have been disastrous and I'm going to take it that they were very close. They were both invited to this uh, wedding. I'm going to take it they were very close to the people who were being married, the families, and uh, the mother of Jesus goes to him and said, look, we've, we've got a crisis here. You've got to do something. His response was, uh, 
interesting and a point of debate on with a lot of theologians as to exactly what he was saying to her. But Jesus did it. Another thing interesting is the head waiter, the master of the ceremonies. This ain't his first rodeo. He's uh, drank plenty of wine. He knows what good wine tastes like, and he knows what bad wine tastes like. By all context, I don't know how you come out with any other conclusion except that this wine had alcohol in it. For one, why would you serve the good stuff and the bad stuff later unless they were going to be somewhat intoxicated and not know the good wine from the bad wine? Interestingly, where it says the phrase used when everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, that term people have drunk freely, word there used is methuo. Methuo literally means to be drunk. Again, we're going to go over this and I've, I've taken so much of your time in this first podcast, I was going to try to keep it at 20 minutes. I obviously ran over that. So with that, I'm going to close out. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast once more. This is my first one, so I would really like to hear your comments, uh, both positive and negative. I would like to know if this was any any help to you in understanding this topic. So I'm not judging anybody. I can't judge you. There's nothing holy about me except the God that I serve. And for reasons unknown to me, he thought I was worth redeeming and good thing for. I could have never done it on my own. It's in Christ alone that I'm redeemed. And uh, with that, God bless you. And I hope you have a wonderful day. 